Truly, the Lord is our hope and our song. Would you join me in prayer? Lord, we come before you as needy creatures. How our souls praise you, that we can sing to you worship that you are most deserving of, that we join the angels in crying out how holy you are. And Lord, we know that you care for us as your children, that you know what each heart is wrestling with, and we ask that you would meet that. Father, we pray as we worship that you would meet us and that you would help us to continue our worship as we turn to your word in a few more moments, that you would help us to not just hear it and understand it, but to apply it and to trust you. Lord, we thank you for other churches in our community. We lift up Ben Bolin Baptist Church, that you would be with them out in Creston, that you would continue to work in them and through them. Father, we uh, lift up uh, Bible Fellowship Church in Greentown, Pennsylvania, part of our sister network, that you would be with them this morning, that you would continue to work in and through them. And uh, Father, we thank you for what you're doing uh, in other congregations, Lord, and we lift them to you. Father, we're very aware that the church in all places is not uh, free as we are to worship this morning, and we take that for granted. We lift up our persecuted brethren this morning. Your word tells us to pray as if we're in chains with them, and so we lift up our brethren, uh, particularly in West Africa this morning. Lord, that you would be in the, uh, with, with many in the countries of Mali and um, uh, other other regions of West Africa that are experiencing great persecution. Lord, we pray for mainly uh, those that are bringing the persecution, and we thank you for uh, saving many, Lord, out of radical Islam to come to know you. And we pray, Lord, that you would help them to lay down their, their weapons and, and realize that you are the Prince of Peace, that you also care for them, and that you can call them out to a life that is so much deeper and so much greater because you give spiritual life to their soul. So we pray for the persecuted church, Lord, that you would cause them to endure, that you'd help them to praise you in the midst of persecution, as we know that uh, even the apostles praised you, that they are they were counted worthy to suffer for your name. Father, we pray for unreached people groups. Our hearts ache that there are so many that cannot praise you this morning because they've never heard of you. And we ask that you would take the gospel to them, that you would send missionaries to them. God, we lift up the Boca people of China again this morning, that you would bring the gospel to them, that you would help translators translate the scriptures into their language. God, that you would break our hearts for Asia, so many millions and almost billions of people that have never heard of your name, and they're living sun up to sundown without worshiping you or knowing of your great love for them in the gospel. Lord, we know that you will bring out every nation, tribe, and tongue, that you will redeem some from every nation, tribe, and tongue, and so we ask that you would save, that you would work here. Father, we lift up our world to you as we think about it. We pray for the Sudan crisis. We continue to lift up the city, particularly of Khartoum, that you would be with uh, many there, we know that you have many there, uh, Christians there, that you would help them to endure in the midst of all the fighting, that you would spare lives, Lord, that you would work in the midst of the chaos. Father, the war in Ukraine, as it lingers on and 
Many have lost their lives, both Ukrainian and Russian. Lord, that you would make yourself known in the midst of that, that you would be with the Ukrainian church and the Russian church. Lord, that you would be glorified and, and pleased to bring many to faith in you in this season. We don't forget the suffering that's going on in Turkey and Syria, the refugees that have lost homes due to the earthquake uh, earlier this year, that you'd provide for them, that you would uh, provide homes and food, and Lord, that you would take the gospel to them, to the many that are working there. Father, we pray continually for those in our community and let alone our, our country that are grieving over many different things. We think of our communities that have been affected by natural disasters and shootings in recent days, that, Lord, you would bring the gospel to those communities and the church would rise up and be the church in those areas. Father, we think of the Brown family here in our community who's continuing to grieve the loss of Cade, that you would be with them. Father, we pray for many who are traveling, that you would be with them. Many that are sick, we lift up Danny Richardson to you. We lift up um, others that are battling cancer. Father, we lift up uh, Bill Smith to you, Lord, who is battling pancreatic cancer. Lord, that you would uh, make yourself known to him and draw near to him. Father, we pray for uh, our graduates. Lord, we thank you for Joel and the accomplishments that uh, you have brought him to uh, just yesterday in finishing high school. And Lord, that you would give him grace as he commits his work to you. And Lord, as you establish what you have for him to do, that you would uh, encourage him. Lord, we lift up other graduates that just left this church recently. We think of uh, Colson and Caleb Crank and Thomas and Olivia Jones. Lord, we thank you for um, what you're doing in their lives. Lord, that you would continue to bless them and keep them as they go off to college and do the various things that you've called them to do. Father, we think of our expectant mothers. We think of Ellie and Sarah, that you'd be with them, that you would be with these child, children in the womb, and Lord, that you would um, just give them uh, just great pregnancies, Lord, that you would help them to have uh, just good uh, deliveries as well, and that the, these children would be healthy, Lord. Father, we thank you uh, for the oars and precious Dakota. Thank you for uh, just the, the blessing of a new child, uh, Lord, that you would strengthen Ethan and Kaylee, Lord, and help them to be the parents that you've called them to be. We just thank you for them and what you're doing in their lives. Uh, Lord, we thank you for our members in transition as well, that you'd be with them, that you would strongly encourage them and uh, draw them close to you, and Lord, that you would help them in these, in these days. Lord, we lift up uh, Christ alone to you. We pray that you would be with uh, Pastor Tim as he takes the pulpit again. Uh, Lord, thank you for um, just the time that uh, Brian was able to have with them last week, and Lord, that you would just bless that, that precious small congregation, Lord, and that you'd be with them. We think of Paul Graybeal as well, Lord, as he preaches out at Shady uh, Valley Baptist Church this morning, that you would strengthen him, give him encouragement, as he hasn't preached in some time. And Father, those who are, uh, want to be with us but are having to work today, that you would be with them as well and help them as they uh, attend to our community and, and love people and, and seek to administer your gospel of peace. Lord, now as we look to your word, would you be glorified, we pray, not just in the preaching of it, but our obedience to it. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, uh, as promised, I 
told the children that I would kind of catch up a little bit on some of the children's bulletins before I uh, jump into the message this morning and uh, catching up a little bit on some ones from uh, earlier in Genesis. Uh, one of the children asks, what animals are clean animals? Well, uh, there is a great answer to that question um, in uh, the book of Leviticus that speaks of what kind of animals are unclean, identifying those. But even when we look into the law in Deuteronomy, God called clean animals uh, mainly those that were cattle or sheep or even doves that were being sacrificed. And it was very interesting that God made allowances for even people who were poor to have less expensive sacrifices. But they were to call to bring these at different times and in various ways. So uh, the clean animals were certainly separated in the context of what we were looking at with Noah uh, that will ultimately feed into what you would see in the law and what was demanded. And yet God provided for those sacrifices through these physical animals between the time of Noah's ark and the establishment of God's law and the sacrificial system. So it just shows how great, what a great planner our God is and yet how he identifies uh, these uh, animals. A second question that came from last week as we took a break from Genesis in Titus chapter 2, and it was a great question. I think children make, ask the most profound questions, is why did God call men to lead? And I assume that they're asking why did God call men to lead rather than women in the context of what we were looking at in uh, Titus 2. Well, to answer that question very simply is God reveals himself himself as male, if you've ever realized that. In our current culture, we see quite a uh, challenge with that, don't we? That, um, that, that we think there's no difference between masculine and feminine. But it's very interesting, the way that God has revealed himself, he's revealed himself in a masculine way. And he's revealed himself as male when he speaks of him and he and uh, Elohim himself, while plural, speaks of the Trinity of God, that he is um, in three persons but yet one. And yet he reveals himself as male. And this is the context, the shortest way I can answer this, is that God reveals himself and he cares about how he reveals himself because it's based on his nature and character. And so when he made man in his own image, he created man first, and then if you remember, he took woman from the man. And while both man and woman are made in God's image, God himself reveals his headship, if you will, through the, the, uh, the different roles that he calls men and women to. And so when he calls men to lead, it doesn't mean that men are greater than women or more like God than women are. We're both created in God's image. But sameness is different than equality. And our world is saying that that is the same thing, and it's not. There's differences between men and women, and those are good things to be celebrated. But we look at the scriptures, we see that God mainly has called men to lead, not because they are the best at it. In fact, we often fail at it because of the fall, but we are called to it mainly to glorify God. He has called us to this role, and he's called just as much women to specific roles as well. So what a great question, whoever answered that. And I really like your comment at the bottom. It says, how does today's message apply to your life? And this is what they wrote. I am hungry. I am very hungry. 
So excellent question and amen to being hungry. So I will get on with it. Would you turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 14? Genesis chapter 14. you stand with me as we read God's word? We're going to read verses 1 through 16. This is God's word. In the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elasar, Chedolomir, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goim, these kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma. Shem-eber, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is, Zor. And all these joined forces in the valley of Sidim, that is, the Salt Sea. Twelve years they had served Chedolomer, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Chedolomer and the kings of, uh, and the kings who were with him came and defeated Raphaim in Asheroth Karnaim and Zuzim in Ham, and Amim in Savath Kiriathim, and the Horites in their hill country of Seir, as far as El Paran, to the border of the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to En Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and defeated all the country of the Amalekites, and also the Amorites who were dwelling in Hazan Tamar. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, the king of Bela, that is Zor, went out and they joined battle in the valley of Sidim with Chedolomer, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goyim, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Ariok, king of Elessar, four kings against five. Now, the valley of Sidim was full of bitumen pits. And as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, and the rest fled to the hill country. And so the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions and went their way. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eschol and Aner. These were allies of Abram. And when Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, and he and his servants, and defeated them, and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions, and all and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. This ends the reading of God's word. May he add his blessing to it. You may be seated. I think you realize at this point that there's a reason that I did not preach this for Mother's Day. Um, but uh, I appreciate your willingness to um, look at Titus 2 last week. We'll return to that, hopefully, Father's Day. Uh, to make some comments from that same passage, really, on what God uh, calls us as men, let alone as fathers, uh, to a great call. As we look at this this morning, I think about the context of our world. 
When we turn on the news, we see war. We think and, and realize that God is bringing the story of human history to his intended end. And while many of us think that perhaps this is the end of time that we are heading to, that there's, as Jesus said in Matthew 24, that we'll, there will be wars and rumors of wars. I remember the words of my great-grandmother in the early 90s before she passed. She told me the story of watching, uh, as she was born in the late 18th century into the 19th century and survived and lived through both world wars and her own husband serving in many ways there during those years. She thought for sure the rise of these world wars were certainly signs of the end. And while she was absolutely right, she was a firm believer that she would live to see the day that Jesus came back. In fact, many of us looked side to side when she passed and said, did we miss it? But we are so thankful to look at the, our past and see that God has uh, sovereignly uh, stirred the nations, his direction, wherever he sees them to go, like stirring waters as we see in the text of Scripture, that God is over all and is able to use whatever he chooses but as we look today and we consider chaos, not just without, but sometimes within our own communities, when we consider the shootings that are happening, the great evil and the great, the great cry of our young people that are depressed more than any other generation, when we see drugs that are uh, just consuming our communities and flowing across the border, when we see child trafficking and other uh, forms of perversion just being exalted as normal, we live in a world that's crying out for the return of the king, that Christ would return, that he would call things into his plan and into submission. But we are not alone. Every generation has seen this battle since the day sin entered the world. It's ultimately the kingdoms of darkness versus the kingdoms of our God. And Christ, we know, will reign supreme, that he will have the victory. And there is a great joy as the church of Jesus Christ, knowing that we can go to the gates of hell and we can preach the gospel and God sovereignly is going to break those gates open and he is going to redeem many for his sake as he creates a people for himself. And so we know that big picture. We know that there is victory, but when we think about it in day-to-day -day terms, often we get discouraged. In our text this morning, we see this very thing happening in the life of Abram. We have the glories of the promises that have been made to him, the glories of the future of what is going to be, and he hasn't even had a son yet. And yet it's promised that he would have great nations that would come out of him, that there would be a land, and all he sees is warring parties. Can you imagine the day-to-day -day thoughts that Abram must have had coming out of the land of the Chaldeans? Following God by faith, we know he's trusting him, but he comes across providential circumstances that seem to question whether God is going to keep his promise, whether God really cares for him, and whether God really is answering him. I want to look at this text that seems quite complicated when you look at it. It's basically a battle scene. And as we look at this battle scene, we see really no mention, really, of God as, as far as by name. It's, it's historical narrative. It's telling us facts about this war. 
but we'll see how this ties in to God's ultimate plan. I want to look at it in three points. First of all, we'll see the providential, God's providential work in nations in general, but we'll also look at these particular nations. Secondly, we're going to see that the text flows down into verse 8, 9, and 10, and then ends in verse 12 with the uh, point that this is affecting Abram's family. And so we'll see God's providence and his work in our families through circumstances. And then lastly, we'll look at verse 13 through 16 and see God's providence in the lives of his people and what he's doing and how this relates to the greater promise that God had made to Abraham, let alone what uh, he was going to do uh, further out in bringing our Savior into the world. So let's look at those this morning. When we look at the text here in verse 1, it lists these kings. And notice, I call him King Cheddar because it's easier to say it that way and it reminds you uh, that he's slicing it straight. So notice that King Cheddar is the king with these other kings are formed an alliance, basically, that is leading over these other kings. And notice in the context here who's submitting to that in verse 2. And even in parentheses at the end of verse 2, it says Zoar. That should jump off the page to you. Do you remember Zoar? Zoar is where Lot looked to, look back to chapter 13, verse 10. Do you remember this? He says, And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered and were like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Notice the parentheses there. Don't ever ignore parentheses. And the, the flow of Genesis, the author Moses is connecting these thoughts here. So Zoar is important because remember, not to be deceived by appearance, Lot went to a fertile place, but he pitched his tent near Sodom, which God's word in, verse, or in chapter 13 said, were men who were evil and did not fear the Lord. In fact, brought great shame to his name through their many perversions, which will the, the context of the scriptures return to here uh, later on. But so notice here that this is speaking of a larger political issue going on in the context of what we now know as uh, Israel today that we know that this is the case because we see that the promise of God involved this very land. And there's a problem. Why is there a problem? Well, there's people on that land who are not God-fearing people. They are not people who are looking to the future of what God will do. They are, in fact, pushing against it. In fact, they are wicked in the eyes of the Lord. And this is just a few chapters after God destroyed the world as we knew it because of the great violence of men. And so we see here that these kings are, are serving them. Notice uh, uh, 12 years, verse 4, that they had been serving King Cheddar. But in the 13th year, what did they do? They rebelled. They rebelled. And so in the context of this, we see that not only did they have great, I'll wait for the, the flights to go by. They came by last Sunday too. They know I'm preaching. 
I'm going to have to talk to the government about that. <laughs> Twelve years they served him, but in the 13th year they rebelled. So it's now at this point that they're uncomfortable with just giving all of their tribute to him. And so in verse 5 it says the following year, the 14th year, that Chedolomer and the kings who were with him came and defeated, notice, these three other kings. And they continue, verse 6, the Horites in the hill country of Seir. Now, we don't have a map this morning to look at this, but what, basically what we're looking at is the Jordan Valley, that they are going up and down and basically uh, showing their power in this, in this region. And then in verse 7, it says, they turned back and they defeated uh, all these other Amalekites and Amorites. And those are important because we, these are the, actually the, the, the people that are left over from these battles. Ultimately, Moses is going to encourage uh, Joshua to defeat later in when, when the, uh, the land is uh, conquered by, in Joshua's day. But it's in the midst of this that we come to that. Now, in, in verse 8, this is where the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, and the king of Adma, and the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, again, that is Zor, they go out in battle in the valley of Sidim against uh, Chedolomir and Tidal and Amraphel, Shinar, and King. And so it mentions here it's four against five. So notice that. So why is Moses telling us this? Well, ultimately, it's about the promise. We see the land that has been promised to Abram, that God has sovereignly sworn that he will give Abram this land, and that ultimately his nations, those who come out of him, will be so numerous. You can see where this comes into question when those who are in power right now would seem to question whether the promise of God could actually happen. And so we see God's providence in the nations, what he is working, what he is accomplishing, what is he seeking to do in and through the movement and activities and even power struggles of nations. And so in the context of this, it tells us in verse 10 that during this battle, now in the valley of Sidim, that this was full of bitumen pits. It's very interesting that bitumen was very key um, a product for doing the Tower of Babel. It seems that in the construction of many of the generations following the flood that, uh, that this was used. And so these pits were used as really places to produce um, bitumen in order to, to build and to uh, create the, the cities and towns of what we now know as the Middle East. And so these kings here were fleeing, and notice they're fleeing all the way to the hill country, which would be to the north and to the east. And so the enemy noticed they took everything. They took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions, and they went their way. And so there's a great uh, uh, defeat going on. But it's very interesting in the context of the issues of the nations that we get a verse like verse 12 that clearly puts God's people back in the center of uh, vision here. Look at verse 12. It says, They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, 
who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions and went their way. Isn't it interesting, in, even in the way that it speaks of these nations, that they're doing what they're doing and they're going their way. It seems like whatever they want to do happens. And in the midst of life, we might even look at such things and say, why is it that God would allow such horrible things to happen, even from evil kings? How is it that we can look at even our own political climate today and say, God, why are you allowing such things? But God is overall. And we know that God calls us to submit to our various governments wherever we are believers in the world. Now, we might want to complain under whatever circumstances we find ourselves in the United States from year to year. But we have it very good compared to um, God's people of the past. When you consider the power struggles of years and generations before us, you think about how Paul called the Corinthian, or the Corinthian church, let alone the Roman church, to submit to authorities and to pray for them. And yet these were some governments that were putting Christians to death just for believing on the name of Christ. And so throughout the scriptures, we see a struggle of nations. We know from Psalms 2, it, it calls out that we would kiss the sun and that the nations, why is it that they would rage? Why is it that they don't bow the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ, the King of all kings? It's an ultimate battle until our King returns. It's an ultimate battle between the darkness, uh, the, the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. But in the context of Abram's life, we see turmoil going on, and he's at the midst of it. And so we see God's not just his providential care in the nations, but we see here also the providential work that God is doing in his family. And so the focus of the text goes here in verse 12 to Lot. And what has happened? Abram's brother remember, or Abram's uh, brother died, as we saw in previous chapters in the genealogies, and Lot is left. And Lot was with Abram when all this took place. And Lot, remember, separated from Abram, and Lot chose the valley of Zoar and goes and dwells there, even though he's amidst um, the, uh, the areas of Sodom and Gomorrah, which will, the text will return to. We know that this has been not good for him because he's in the context of a place that is not healthy. It's not God-fearing. It is not in line with the promise that God made to his uncle, Abram. But we find that God providentially puts us in circumstances as we see that Abram is here that really sometimes have nothing to do with our choices. But God is using them to ultimately make our lives a display of his glory. And so for Lot to be amongst Sodom, it seems like a great frustration to Abram to hear of Lot's uh, being taken captive. But we see here in this context that this is part of God's plan, that Abram's bro uh, 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 brother's son Lot is taken out with, notice, all of his possessions, and they are taken away uh, here in verse 12. Have you ever wondered why seeming chaos comes into your life? Or how an unfortunate circumstance in your extended family seems to take the breath from everyone. Don't dismiss the fact that God is working even in these things. 
God is working in the context of our, our own families ultimately to fulfill his greater ends and ultimately for his glory. And so Abram was struggling with this. He's not only lost his brother in, in recent years, but now his own nephew is being taken captive. You can imagine how this must have rested on his mind and his thoughts. And so we see God's providential work in Abram's family. But also here, we see that God is providentially working in Abram. Look at verse 13. It says, Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre. We know that that's where he has been dwelling um, near the Amorites, uh, in where God had uh, called him to go, and he had set up an altar. We see that from uh, chapter 12 and 13. And it says that uh, these were allies of Abram, Eskol and uh, Aner, and we need to remember those because we'll come back to those next week. And these aligned uh, with him and were helping him, and there was peace. And then in verse 14, it says, But when Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. Now, Dan is to the north. It uh, actually would be uh, almost two full day journeys if you're traveling with, uh, by horseback. You can imagine the uh, trouble that is on Abram's heart as he realizes that his son has been taken captive, but this rises him to action. It doesn't say that he prayed. It doesn't say that he sought the Lord. It doesn't say that uh, any, anything along those lines is just the text of Scripture telling us that this is what happened. And Abram goes, and he goes by faith, we know, because we'll see this uh, towards the next chapter, but in, there's 318 of them, and they go in pursuit. Isn't it awesome how God brings details? Don't, don't miss that, that you have four kings against five, and Abram's got 318 guys. And isn't it amazing that God pays attention to the details? He wants us to see that here in the text, that while God is working amongst the nations and there's all kinds of wars and turmoil in family, particularly Abram's family, that he has people set aside. Now, we know from our last passage that it, uh, Abram was wealthy, that he was in charge of much. In fact, his flocks and herds were so great that they, that's why they had to split Lot and, and Abram. But it's out of these, there was no doubt, there was constant warrings that happened and constant thievery and all these kinds of things as a reason to have what you would call in our day a security force, to watch over raiders and others that would cause harm to you and your household. And so these were trained men. They were men that were able to go to war. They were men that were used to fighting off not just wild beasts, but uh, wild uh, men who would come and seek to destroy. And so they are going forth. Notice they're going as far as Dan, so it's their wide uh, spread. And it says in verse 15 that Abram divided his forces against them by night. Here we go from a man who is um, coming out of Ur of the Chaldees, walking with God, is at peace with the Lord, and 
uh, is an animal type man and yet he's being called to great battle. Isn't that true in the context of our lives as Christians? We're known as people of our great king who are prince of peace is leading us, but oftentimes God calls us to battle. And it's in these times that God accomplishes not just his work in us, but ultimately for his kingdom and his glory. And often that battle is not a physical battle as we see here in the Old Testament. It's a spiritual battle, is it not? As we've talked about before, that the forces of darkness are not ones that are in flesh and blood, but are unseen. And so the language of even the New Testament talks of Christians being called to great violence. Not a violence against other Christians, not a violence against uh, non-Christians for sure, but a violence against our own sin and against the works of Satan. To be standing firm and to put on the armor of God that we would fight by faith to see that God would be glorified and we would have him as our treasure, our sole treasure. And so right here, this is in tension for Abram. And so he divides his forces, and notice it's by night, and God uses this wisdom to rout and defeat these kings, and he pursues them as far as Hobah, north of Damascus. That is all the way to the northern stretches of what we would know from the earlier chapters as the promised land. Literally, Abram is fighting for existence. He's not fighting for control. He's just fighting to survive and to redeem that which was stolen from him. He is the underdog at the very core here. And so in verse 16, it finishes up this um, great passage by saying that he brought back all of the possessions, also brought back his kinsman Lot. There's no sense of loss here. All of his possessions and the women and the people. Ultimately, in the context of verses 1 through 16, God has shown not only his sovereignty in the nations, he's not only shown his providential work in um, Abram's uh, extended family, but also he's shown his providential care for Abram himself and guarding the promise. He hasn't lost anything. Everything has been recovered. And yet we know in God's providential work, as we see in other parts of Scripture, like the book of Esther, where God's name isn't even mentioned, we see him working. We see him working in the nations. We see him working in power struggles to accomplish his greater purposes for his ultimate glory. Nothing can thwart God's plans. And so God brings back all these possessions of of Lot and all of his uh, kindred and Abram is no doubt rejoicing. And so while we're not going to go there right now, the passage turns to meeting this great Melchizedek in verse 18, which we know from the book of Hebrews is a type of Christ. What an awesome thing that in the midst of what seems to be chaotic events, what seems to be chaotic events within Abram's family and what seems to be almost a chaos in sense of the uh, promise being made to Abram, God is showing himself sovereign. He's showing himself present. He's showing himself powerful in the midst of such strife. And so what about you and me? What about how this applies to us? How does this apply to the gathering church of West Jefferson? 
How does this apply to your heart and mind and to our families? I think it is these. God is to be trusted and yielded to in times of great chaos. God is to be trusted with the future. God is to be trusted and yielded to in our families, regardless of the crisis. God is to be yielded to, trusted, and submitted to in the midst when it seems that even his word seems to be not being fulfilled in us. And that can create a variety of different areas in our lives, but we ask these questions, don't we, in the context of our lives. Lord, if, if you love me, why have you allowed this into my life? Lord, if you love me, why is it that my loved one is suffering with cancer? Lord, if you love me, why is it that I'm struggling to be a good parent when I'm seeking to be the best that I can be, to love my children and raise them in the fear and admonition of the Lord? Lord, why is it that that you have brought this great pain into my life in some area of our family? Maybe your finances or other areas that God is getting your attention And as we consider this from the life of Abram, that God was simply using the great picture of these issues, as we saw in chapter 13, with the separation of Lot and Abram, and we see now with these battles going on, that God is using these problems to funnel Abram into his presence. We'll see Melchizedek bring bread and wine to him. It's in the context of great trial, church, that God brings us into fellowship with himself. It's it's through the great providence of God that he calls us to worship him in the midst of tough things. In fact, they're the gift of God. And so as we look at this text this morning, I think that what should point out to us is not just the weird names that we're reading of these kings, but just as weird as these names are is sometimes the weird nature that we sometimes wonder why is it that God has brought these things into our lives. It seems strange, doesn't it? It's interesting because Peter says the same thing. He says, don't, think, don't count it a strange thing of what God is doing, but he will affirm and establish you when you work through these items. I'm, I'm totally um, summarizing what Peter says here in, um, in 1 Peter when he speaks of these things that God uses the strange things of our lives to produce more fruit in us. Church, perhaps this season is ultimately to rid ourselves of our trust in us and look to him. We've gone through great trials as a congregation. Perhaps you're going through great trials individually speaking in your lives. What is it that God is using? What is he speaking in the context of those great trials? For Abram, it was ultimately questioning what God was ultimately doing. But he's going to see that God was simply funneling him back to the promise of what he knew from chapter 12, that God promised him a nation a land that he would be a blessing to all nations, ultimately pointing to Christ. Could it be that God uses the strange, weird things of our everyday experience to put together a great way and a great platform in which to exalt himself through you? 
Is it true that God can actually forgive sin, raise his son from the dead, and yet at times we fail to trust that he's going to use the very issues of our life to make himself known in you and through you? How is it that God would be so kind to take the work of the nations and use it to bless this one man, Abram, to ultimately set apart a land, a people for his praise, for his glory, that God would be exalted. So while you might feel that your life is in chaos in many different ways, perhaps that's from just graduating, or whether that is from uh, a new child in your home, or whether that is a big life event that has happened. God is working through these details of our lives to ultimately bring a praise to his glory. The, tre- the question is, are we treasuring Christ in the midst of that? Are we trusting him to paint this picture and connect the dots that we can't see right now? And he calls us to trust him. This is the nature of walking by faith and not by sight. And that's exactly what Moses is penning here in the book of Genesis to see God's greater plan being etched together one story at a time. And it's a great story of God's redemptive line ultimately leading to Christ who is worthy of all of our worship, who will return as a king. And there's times we know that as Christians we question when and how is the king going to return. It has been 2,000 years. We've trusted that promise. But just as Abram trusted that promise to come to pass in his day, so we are looking to the future that Christ will return. We trust him. We believe him. We go on mission knowing that he's redeeming the nations, that he's calling us to send out missionaries, that we would proclaim the name of Christ until he returns, that there will be many before the throne one day that are crying out in praise and adoration to the Most High. We believe this. We know this to be true. And then we look at our lives and say, what in the world? So take hope, dear Christian, that your life in the context of the nations and what God is planning He is working it together for good. We know that he has good in mind because he is good. And so while the wars of men cause all kinds of problems and turmoil, God is greater and is able to use even the sinful choices of men to accomplish his great and sovereign purposes. And that is something that we have to continue to learn in our lives, in his providential workings in us and through us. And so maybe it's time to turn off the news. Maybe it's time to realize that whatever happens, God is accomplishing his purpose. Perhaps you need to stop trying to control the issues within your family and trust the Lord that he's going to accomplish his purpose amidst them. And then lastly, are you trusting his promises, period? Are you looking into the pure word of God and believing it and trusting him? And ultimately, as we see in Abram's life and in ours, that God is using these things to bring us to himself and say, are you looking to me? Are you pouring these things before me? Because I truly am your only hope. As the apostle John says that in in chapter 15, that we are called to abide in him. Apart from him, we can do nothing. Christ is enough. This sovereign God who rules the nations is also our Savior. 
and our Father and our God. And with that, we can take great delight this morning that whatever we are going through this morning, he will accomplish his purpose. And that purpose is for our good. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for a passage like this. At first look, it's just a bunch of weird king's names. But Lord, you were at work. We see even the structure of this passage is a going from the beginning of, of what you're doing in the nations in that area of the world at that time to how you're dealing providentially with Abram's family and then with Abram himself that sets us up for the glorious passage that we're about to look at next week of how Abram meets this mysterious king called Melchizedek, the king of righteousness. And Lord, for many of us, we have had lives that were chaotic until the day that you came in and spoke peace into our world that you sought fit for us to hear the gospel and you called us out of darkness into the kingdom of your marvelous son. I just pray if there's one here this morning or hearing us online, that Lord, you would draw them to yourself, not because any work that we have done, but ultimately because of you, that you are the prince of peace. You are the king of righteousness. You, and there is no other. That You can bring peace to their world through the Lord Jesus Christ and what he's accomplished in his death and his resurrection. But Lord, for us, your people, we also find great comfort that while we live in a chaotic world, we don't need to fear. When you left your disciples, you said in this world we will have tribulation, but take heart, I've overcome the world. And while we believe that, we haven't seen it in full yet. As an embassy of your son, as a local church, we look forward to the return of King Jesus. But until then, Lord, you have called us to take heart, not to grow weary in doing good, to be filled with the Spirit, to go and preach the gospel, and Lord, ultimately to trust you. I just pray that you would draw near to the hurting heart this morning. I pray that you would uh, give great um, confidence to one who is dismayed. Lord, I pray that you would encourage our mothers as they finish up a school year, our fathers as they put their hands to the work that you have called them to, to love their families and disciple them. Lord, as you have called uh, men to lead even in the workplace, God, we pray for this church and our mission, Lord, that you would provide, that you would help us in the days ahead, and even in our members meeting to follow that, Lord, this is what you've called us to, these things. And so, Lord, let us not look at solving our problems just by taking up the sword. But we thank you that, Lord, you can raise up 318 men to go and accomplish your purposes, as we saw in this text. And so help us to trust you, Lord, not in the power of man or the wisdom of man, but ultimately in submitting to you, our great God and King. We love you, and we thank you for your glorious gospel. Apply these things to our hearts as you see fit. We are yours. In Jesus' name, amen.